curious, competitive, compassionate. Salespeople are drawn to their careers in much the same way musicians are drawn to music. Once you've learned the language of sales, the beauty is in your ability to personally interpret what you've learned to suit your personality, your interest, and your skill. My name is Roger Burnett, and this is the So You're In Sales podcast, where we consider ways to grow as people as we advance in our careers and learn firsthand from those ahead of us on the path to accelerate our journey. I'm lucky to get to talk every two weeks with entrepreneurs, business owners, thought leaders, authors, and people of all walks of life, each with a unique story to share and a look at their lessons along the way. Prepare to be educated, informed, entertained, and inspired. This is the So You're In Sales Podcast. The So You're In Sales Podcast is sponsored by Social Good Promotions. Social Good Promotions was founded on the premise that any business can stand out from their competition when they are doing things they really believe in. True success these days is measured by the ways your employees feel about working for you and the ways your business is making the community a better place. Ultimately, it's about the ways you and your business will be remembered. If you're looking to grow your sales revenue while activating social good at the same time, we'll be your favorite marketing partner ever. Book a meeting with us at socialgoodpromotions.com, follow us on Instagram at sogoodpromo, and let's get connected. We've done great work using our unique and effective strategy. Let us show you how. Now, on with the show. We're rounding the corner and heading for home in 2019. And in this episode, I invite in Tom Goes, the president of Image Source out in Seattle, for a discussion about ways people might spend additional money that they've made in the sales year 2019 that could potentially represent some investment capital that you may be able to put into your business in 2020. So Tom has got a lot of experience growing his business, and I thought who better to bring on to have a discussion about where you might place those bets and what you might be able to realize in benefit as a result of placing them. I think it was really interesting discussion and it really turned to culture. So I think that you will uh, be interested in learning more about the image source culture and the ways that that organization has intentionally built itself. Hope it's good to you. Give it a listen. So man, thanks for coming on. Uh, I pre- you know, we got uh, what, two, three time zones, two time zones between us and holiday oh. weekend and right behind us that we're trying to recover from. So I appreciate you coming on and taking the time. This is this is actually the only the second episode where you are listed in the title, but actually your third time on the show because you did come on as a panelist for me one time as well. So I appreciate you being willing to uh, continue to rejoin me for discussions about all things sales. You bet. I always enjoy talking to you, Roger. We were talking about uh, where we are in the calendar, you know, as, as we kind of put on our track shoes now. You know, we really got like a good 15 weeks until Thanksgiving. But knowing that 2020 is right around the corner and as business owners are starting to think about where they might put their money next year, Tom, there's infrastructure investments that people will make that will be maintenance-based where, you know, they're just wanting to make sure that they keep the pillars of the business operational. But then there is some consideration given to if I was going to make an investment in growth, given where I think people are going to come out from their sales year in 2019, 
Uh, I think there might be some dollars for people to spend in growth categories next year. So from your perspective, if you did have a chance to make some high value investments, where, where would you be placing your bets? Well, for us here at ImageSource, you know, we're a branded merchandise agency in, in the kind of Pacific Northwest area. When I think of this, I think there's kind of three areas for, for how I see it and for us. One's uh, technology. I mean, that's clearly, I think, on everyone's top radar with everything going on. Um, you know, for us, we're looking at a new ERP, different client tools, creating both efficiency and better, you know, client touches. Number two is for us is is marketing. Uh, we're doing a lot of these experience marketing events where we tie in um, a client experience with pr- promotional products, and so uh, we're doing our fall showcase. We create an experience for a client to come in and experience. The, the value of promotional products and the vastness of promotional products. So last year we had 750 people attend and we m- try to make it fun and put a different flair on it. Th- this year we're doing like these vignettes. And so you walk into uh, we have four areas. Uh, one is we're creating like an office. We have walls and, and um, creating like you're walking into an office and where do promotional products live in an office? Um, we're also creating it in a coffee shop. And so you walk in and, you know, for us in the industry, you walk around and you see promotional products everywhere. But when you, when you're not in the business, you maybe not notice it. They, they are everywhere. And so we're kind of creating these vignettes of what it may look like to actually walk in and see promotional products at work in a lifestyle, uh, situation. We're also doing kind of a camping environment. And then, of course, we'll have hundreds, a couple hundred of our factories represented there in food and entertainment and on-site screen printing and stuff like that. So we're, we're investing in, one, our medium promotional products, and two, that experience marketing. Um, and the last, for me, is people. Um, we, we invest in in people, which is bringing on new people and also our, our existing uh, team. And so I think you, you have to invest both uh, obviously, money and training to grow each year. So, for me, those are the three that are top of mind. It's so funny that you bring up the experiential piece. Yeah, if we there's there's so much discussion going on, and it's not. It's just in sales in general, regardless of what you're selling. This notion of how do I make an in-person connection as a part of my prospecting plan? If you look at the evolution of sales over at least my time carrying a bag. Now, if there's really been any significant dramatic change, it's our complete inability to interrupt a person in their place of work. It used to be relatively easy. You did you had some challenges with security and things like that, but you know, people were annoyed by the fact that you might be interrupting them. But I mean the receptionist position existed in large part to route people to the appropriate people within an organization based on need. And they sat right in the front door and were there to receive people who came in. So there was this inherent expectation of, of some back and forth between two people to gain information. And that walk in an office today and see how receptive anyone is to talking to you if there's even someone there to do it. You know, in thinking about ways to be able to make that in-person connection, you really do have to look at things like what you described, Tom, to say... Like, how do I bring it to them in a way that would be compelling to get them out of their chair and come take a look at what it is that I would want them to see if they were accepting that intrusion? 
by making it entertaining or informative or get them some good food for Pete's sake. Like thinking about your own prospecting efforts, if there's ways for you to take what you sell out into the field and create something similar to what Tom's describing, you know, there's promotional products, professionals out there who are willing to help you engineer an experience like that in much the same way that Tom's describing. So, you know, that really to me is, is a real, game changer for a lot of people who are in outbound sales if they're willing to consider making an investment in something like that because unlike traditional prospecting door knocking which is just the cost of the employee out doing that work you're gonna make the leap to what we're talking about tom then obviously you got to dedicate some budget to that right yeah absolutely it's expensive but they're you know it's a differentiator and and you have to be unique in any market these days there's there's so much competition and previous generations i think you you could market at people you know you could just yell loud enough in a commercial and people would buy yeah it's just not done anymore you know the you can fast forward through everything um so you have to market um with people and and that includes you know it's no longer just looking at demographic and targeting demographics it's a tribe it's a community and how how do you how do you create a tribe or community, or how do you come to a tribe and community and, and, and market alongside of them. So you're not yelling at them because they'll just tune you out. I'm Mr. Mark Schaefer out there somewhere is smiling marketing rebellion. The book he most recently wrote is all about exactly what you just mentioned. And thesis is in order for you to be seen as authentic to the people you'd like to market. Do you actually have to meet them in the places where they are and you have to, yeah, you have to participate with them in those places in a way that makes them feel like you actually know what it is that's going on. So as not to be seen as an intruder or uh, a, a foreigner, you know, from that doesn't speak our language and isn't part of our tribe. So you're hitting that right on the head, which yep. brings me to my next question. So saying it's crowded, noisy, difficult, all those things, like we, that's all table stakes. I don't, I don't think we need to belabor that point anymore. And really what I wanted to get at was, you know, Tom, once you get to be your size, you're seen by a certain caliber of potential buyer as a player for their business. And what I remember from my time in that uh, arena of, you know, the, the upper echelon uh, spend organizations for really anything is by and large, when you're getting called in to compete, you're getting called in to compete against many of the same people every time. And so when you're competing against those people and you're competing on a regular basis, you get to the point where you sort of understand what their pitch is going to be, how yours differs from theirs, where theirs might be, you know, somewhat superior to yours and where you might have holes and all of those things. It's just like when you play another team with some frequency, you just by the sheer repetition, you start to learn things. So from your perspective, when you're thinking about, you know, uh, diff- creating differentiation. If it's image source and the arena that you're playing in, or really every marketplace has its competitors. I have mine, you have yours, everybody else on here knows some of the people that they most frequently compete with. What, what mix, what stew is image source trying to use from uh, a factor perspective when it comes to differentiation? What, what elements are you throwing in there? Yeah, well, I think I've, we always start with the client, and I and I think you can't go wrong there. I think when you start focusing on yourself too much, then you you serve no one. So you know, I think we always start from a, a client perspective, and really, how we do that 
is purpose-driven questioning. In this definition of purpose is trying to uncover the client's goals and objectives, right? And, and you start with that and really understand what they're trying to accomplish, uh, either with their strategy around their branded merchandise campaigns or in a specific campaign or event. Um, in our industry, oftentimes it's just disclosed that it's a trade show or an, a morale event or what it is. It's a marketing campaign, and we just get a very small amount of information. We get the quantity and the budget. And most of the time, branded merchandise agency or distributor would just run with it and, and try to come up with, you know, ideas in a, in, you know, in a small incubator. And, and for us, uh, we really go out and really trying to understand their objectives. You know, what are you really trying to accomplish? How are you going to measure the success of this campaign? How will it be distributed? Some people ask demographic. I think, like we talked about earlier, you go to the tribe, right? Who do they align themselves with? It's not just a male 35 to 49. Those those days are over, right? right. It's, it's what, what do they do in their personal and professional lives? You know, are they athletic or do they run with a, a, a certain style? So, so if we can understand that at a deeper level, we can, we can really help come up with some really creative um, promotional products that, that drive their messaging. No, no one needs a, a pen or a speaker. You know, a client doesn't come to us because they need to write more ink. They come because they're trying to share a message. They're trying to build a brand. They're trying to inspire action. You know, the, the, they want an outcome and, and that's our job. And so if we can uh, you know, understand, you know, what they've seen, what they like, what they don't like, how it will be distributed. If, you know, if they're going to a trade show and they have an eight by eight booth and they want, there are cool ideas, this, you know, drinkware piece. Well, that's the the entire size of right. the trade show booth. So right. just asking a couple of key questions. There's, there's some federal laws around products for target audiences for kids under 12. And so asking those questions at a deeper level may expose less risk for them and and also doing good right we don't want to um, put a product that would possibly harm a child but if you don't ask the question you will never know and so understanding purpose if they're going to a trade show and they and they want a thousand pieces and they want a pen because they need to give something away that's a terrible reason to have a, a, a branded merchandise campaign but my guess is they're trying to get a hundred new leads to close, you know, 10 new clients. Well, if we know that and I know the tribe and I know how it be distributed and uh, a deeper level of the audience, a deeper level of the client, then we can really come up with a really cool campaign that, that really solves their purpose. Um, our team's trained that way. Um, I think it's a, it's a great differentiator. It's um, not our only one, but I, but I think really always asking those questions. And, and I tell our team, you need to have an opinion on their promotional products. That's what we do. And so if they just come to us and say, I need this, ask why. I know it's a hard thing. Most people just want to close up the deal and move on, but ask the whys and ask it five times because usually you won't get it in the first one. You probably won't even get it in the second one, but it'll, it'll help them um, look at their own campaign and look at us as uh, a consultant and, and not someone who's just focused on the product. Our, our, our industry can be um, seen as a very product specific focus 
and it really doesn't adequately convey the value we can bring to our customers as you know people who can build brands and and inspire action that's that's really what we do yeah we can create outcomes that people will thank other people for and that's goes really to anything that you're selling, you know, and even we were saying like, where, where might you focus your investment? I mean, another place, obviously that you can focus your investment is in training, training in yourself. Okay. If, if you're a solopreneur or if you have team members that are um, worthy of being part of your organization, then why not make an investment in their growth in order to ensure that they're able to take their customers on the same journey that uh, I'm described there. Um, you know, training is often sort of a dirty little secret when it comes to smaller businesses, as far as how does that knowledge transfer grow within an organization? And even if you don't have financial resources, if you just dedicate time to, uh, skills training within an organization, it has a a multiplier effect in many instances. And so like Tom, really what you're saying is you want to get at the, what might, what we sell them actually do for them as opposed to yep. it just being the transaction is, you know, it's not what it is, it's what it can do. And that's, that's a yep. key point, key point in trying to figure that out because, you know, again, kind of pivot to the next thing I wanted to talk about, you know, uh, whether you're out there in the Pacific Northwest or here in the Midwest where I am, what's astonishing to me is just how tight the labor market is, how few organizations are actually fully staffed, uh, from a headcount perspective to their objectives and what that's really costing us in, in lost GDP across the country and our inability to really be able to produce at the capacity we could if we had all of the seats taken. So when you're in this current difficult labor market where you're trying to find people to help you grow, I, I hearken back to a conversation we had in the panel discussion last year where you said that 18 was a little bit of an interesting year for you from a hiring perspective in that you had brought some youth on, but it didn't necessarily go as you had anticipated. So I've been waiting all of these nine months to ask you now, like, <laughs> where, where are you with respect to that decision? Are you, you guys are obviously still growing skewing more now towards people who have experience or are you still mixing it up? Like where are you coming out on that right now? Yeah. Well, I think a mix would be the true answer to that. Last year we had quite a few turnover in our account coordinator roles. And, um, and I pleased to say we've had zero attrition and it's, you know, September uh, 3rd today. So um, that's pretty amazing for, for us or any company, I think to to have no attrition uh, in this marketplace, especially in in, a, in Seattle marketplace, it's hot. You know, I think the it's hot. <laughs> it's yeah, hot. the unemployment rate nationally is four percent. They're saying locally too. I mean, if if you want a job, you have it. If if if, if you know you're searching for a job and you can't find one in in the United States or even you know specifically in this market, then you're really not trying. But yeah, I think for us it's a, a mix. You know, we've been very successful in recruiting sales professionals from local business schools. Um, some oh. universities, and one here has a sales certificate program. You know, teaches them academically how to prepare to be a problem solver i.e. salesperson, but they still need to learn the industry. And, and this industry, the branded merchandise industry is, is vast, you know, hundreds of different um, imprint techniques. And so it, it takes a lot to learn this industry. And so what we've done successfully is start these folks as an account coordinator. And so they're doing, you know, product research. Um, they're doing some quotes and order entry and follow-up and tracking and 
project management, which they're used to because they're coming straight out of school and that's what they did in school. And so that allows them to gain competency within the industry. And it takes time to do that. And so my two top sales professionals, multi-million dollar producers, both both came up through this program and they're in their 20s. I mean, you're talking very, very, very successful sales professional. But I think you need to mix that in there with industry professionals or just those with work experience and life experience. So I think you can't be skewed one way. You know, these days, the what millennial goes to, I think, 37 years old. So yeah. I know they seem kind of old these days, but uh, right. we're about... I don't know, 70% millennials or next gen. So we still have a very youthful um, employee base, um, but mixed in with, you know, in some, a lot of industry professionals um, with 20 years experience. And I think that's a good mix. I mean, they, our culture comes out. I think culture is, you know, built from the ground up. And, and I think bringing in that youth has really changed us. And we, we need to reflect our client and our clients largely are becoming the millennial or the next gen. And, and so they think differently. They buy differently. They talk um, differently. They do all kinds yeah. of things differently. And, you know, uh, I'll, I'll echo that only to say that, you know, our business model is targeted at that demographic. And so consequently, I, as a 49-year-old, should not be the one writing for my organization. <laughs> right? I, need, I need someone yeah. to speak with that voice that sounds not like their dad. So, yeah. you know, we're working to do the same thing, to, to speak in the voice of the customer that we are most interested in doing business with. So that's, that's, that's the God's honest truth. And really, to me, like what you're saying, Tom, is you want people that have a, a, an ability to handle a checklist because life really at these days is all about a checklist and to have the flexibility to be able to move around within the confines of what you're supposed to do next on the checklist. Sometimes you got to skip two or three while you're waiting on some other people and you got to be able to think that way in order to achieve the outcome. So to me, that's that mental flexibility. We can't, you can't run a a decent sized uh, sales territory in any business without a, a healthy amount of efficiency and effectiveness. And what better way to, groom more people for sales success than to help them sit at the elbow of someone who's already uh, maybe two or three or four steps ahead of them in that process. So all investment discussion, you know, again, when we say where might you put an investment, you know, if you can figure out what the cost of adding a sales coordinator to your, your small team might be and calculate what you'd have to sell an additional business and the margin that would be necessary in order to cover that person. If you were able to achieve that growth, that helps, uh, figure out a formula to understand whether or not you could get to a place where you could add that headcount. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think the other area for us is culture. Um, I think your culture has to be authentic. I talked about kind of from the ground up, the vision needs to clearly come from the top, but I think the the culture has to be derived, you know, from the team. And, and I think for us, that's, that's been successful for us. And, you know, and that includes, you know, setting a vision and, you know, being transparent and creating work-life balance for, for sometimes more important than money and, and, and kind of understanding each individual's needs to, to a certain extent, you know, but mixing in work hard, play hard, right? I mean, we, we, when we get to work, we get to work, but there's also a lot of fun activities and, you know, our, our culture is fun. And I think that 
that authentic brand of our team comes out in our culture. And, and so March Swagness basketball tournament here with our, <laughs> right, with right. our little, little uh, basketball hoop. We just recently did custom logoed bikes. We have eight image source bikes here and, you know, they're little cool cruisers. And, and uh, you know, I, I like it because it, it shares our brand, but also, yeah. you know, people take them for rides. This is, I get into these conversations with some of my small business brothers and sisters and the conversation invariably turns to how do I spend time investing in that kind of activity when we can barely keep the orders going out the door? And the answer is you don't. You have to create an environment that people would be willing to either stay after or come before in order to be invested in something that was um, a representation of the community as a whole, as opposed to just individual efforts of the participants. So, and you know, um, the big turning point for a lot of people is when they just let the people that they work with make the decisions when it comes to what that should, what that activity should be. Let the, let the people tell you. And I think that just ultimately ends up working out better when you let people have the opportunity to feel like it was something that they created as opposed to having it been put upon them, even if it is, quote, mandatory fun. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, we have, uh, it's called the Culture Club. It's kind of a play off the movie uh, from quite a long time ago. But the I used to sit in on the Culture Club and I guess de facto run it. And this was, I don't know, maybe 10 plus years ago, 12 years ago. And one, one day I missed one of the meetings. My first employee, actually, Nancy Waters, who's still with us, she just celebrated her 20 year here. And, and she's also very honest with me, said that was the best meeting ever. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, what? <laughs> Why? And she was like, you were there. <laughs> we had to make our own decisions and come up with, you know, things on our own. And I was like, ah, what a lesson for me. Like, you know, lesson. That's great. I was, I was hindering it. Uh, you know, um, they were looking to me. So now they sort of run on their own. They have a budget. Both inside the workplace and outside in the marketplace. It is, it's a new day. It's a new set of rules. It's a new playbook of what's even acceptable behavior. Apparently now you can be in the middle of a uh, opportunity with someone and they can just block your number and stop letting you call them. I mean, just some of the things that I hear from people about, you know, what's going on on the other side of the buying table is somewhat astounding to me. And it's kind of where I wanted to wrap up. So this, this, you know, I don't really want to spend a whole lot of time talking specifically about tariffs, but mm-hmm. what I do want to just ask you real quick is when, you know, when I think about things like tariffs or fuel surcharges, when gas went to $4 a gallon way back when, you know, the things where, we have these un- events that upset the traditional supply chain to the point where people feel uncomfortable about making buying decisions. Um, you know, that's not fun for anybody, but yet Trump and China and, you know, most of our stuff comes from China. And so now we can't really reliably communicate what our pricing structure is to our clients. And yet on the other hand, Tom, I can't get any one person to come on a podcast and say to me, you know what? It's not having a real negative effect on my business. I'm just wondering, like, from your perspective, is it causing you any headaches? And if it is, like, are, or if it isn't, are we to the point where we can just say, like, the trade war doesn't really affect us? Yeah, well, I would have to agree. I mean, I haven't seen it affect our business. There are changes in how clients are buying or, or asking questions regarding tariffs. I mean, one, one of the great things is it's not just affecting our industry. You know, it's, it's such a public, uh, you know, consumer 
awareness around tariffs that our industry isn't breaking the news. <laughs> and I think if it was just targeted to the, the promotional products industry, that would be hard. You come to a client and say, hey, we've got this tariff thing, and right. you know, they're in shock. You know, they, they understand it. And if the entire tariff list, $300 billion, comes in from China, it's going to be you know, $1,800 a year on average is what they're saying to, to a consumer. You know, there, there's some awareness and impact. You know, for, for the corporate side, we certainly, I, I think the biggest issue that I hear from clients is uncertainty, right? Mm-hmm. They, they don't know the impact or, or the effect, and neither do I, right? So <laughs> when I'm helping them through this process, it's based on the product category, and it's based on the timing, largely based on where you know, Trump is at the moment. And so that, that's a real tough place to be. And so we we are changing how we're buying some of our bigger projects. You know, recently we had a program that was out of China and we moved it to Cambodia. It was more money. It just, the client didn't want the uncertainty. They wanted to know what they were paying and be comfortable with that. And um, I just had just last week, a a client who was buying a, a sizable amount of lanyards out of China switch to a U.S. made lanyard, it was three times the money. I mean, it was, yeah. it was significant. No amount of tariff would have covered that. They just wanted to be certain. certain. Yeah. That, yep. and, and they didn't want to have any questions or issues. They're concerned even of um, getting product in. I assured them that's, that's not a problem. But still, it was all about that uncertainty. We can, if we can eliminate that, um, then it's it's transparent and predictable, and that's something that that clients are really looking for in in an uncertain world. <laughs> um, I can't always offer that, but but there's so many m- messages out around tariffs that it's it's very con- confusing for for clients. It's very confusing for us. I mean, what currently what you know, September first, we you know apparel uh, is starting to be tariffed. And that's t-shirts, jackets, even pens. Uh, pencils, those are all part of this, this recent tariff list. Um, and, and for our industry, a lot of times it's component parts. So there, there is some effect. And so, man, it's confusing. Well, and to me, I think Tom, like the, the bigger picture discussion here, listeners who, who are not necessarily in promotional products, but who also have to price product for contracts and RFPs and things where you have to make a commitment to the person on the other side of the buying table you know, certainly in this environment, it's the nature of the widespread communication about what's going on that offers credibility to what we're communicating. But I think the most important part in trying to, to cover this part of the discussion is to say, when you're faced with an environment where there's price uncertainty and it's a competitive situation, the first best value that you can show to the customer is starting the conversation with, let's talk about this price uncertainty. So that you understand that we're not just the, the tail here on the dog being wagged. We have a response that we are working on in those instances where these situations are presenting themselves. And I think in some instances, it actually provides you an opportunity to outsell your competition by virtue of your ability to communicate your expertise if you've done your homework better than some of the people that you're playing against. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, and you know, like we were saying before, 
if it's true that you spend a fair amount of your time competing against a lot of the same other competitors, then it's instances like these where a change in circumstance presents itself, gives everyone competing a new chance to reposition based on the approach that each of those players is taking with respect to the change. So to me, it's I, I, like I haven't really heard any high profile logo changing from one provider to another as a result of those things. Uh, our, our news partners out there with the 24-hour news cycle are cre- creating a lot of misinformation and uncertainty and doubt with their continued reporting on things that really aren't changing nearly as frequently as they're making it seem. And the, the simple fact that there's price uncertainty, I mean, there is always an element of price uncertainty. We just happen to be in a little bit wider water these days. So, so Tom, I appreciate your perspective and viewpoint from the Pacific Northwest. And I, I can't thank you again for coming on. And as I expect, uh, you'll, we'll probably have you back on for one of those year-end panels, man. So thanks for coming out. Yeah, happy to do it. So there you have it. Great job always out of Tom. Some of the noteworthy pieces in that interview to me with respect to where might you make investments in growth. So technology for efficiency and increasing and improving the user experience and doing experiential marketing, creating opportunities for people to interact with our products in a innovative way and investing in people, both from a training perspective, as well as uh, focusing on differentiation and the ways that your organization communicates its value proposition to your clients and the importance of investing in training and the way that all of that ends up driving your corporate culture is all embedded right in there in that discussion. So great job as always with Tom. I'm looking forward to our next discussion. So please, if you like what we're doing, please subscribe to the podcast, share it around with your friends and let other people know so that we can continue to get the great topics and interviews that we've had to date.